0: This evening we continue our series that we've entitled Revelation, the Next Dimension. It's meant to uh, reflect that which comes next. The book of Revelation giving us a glimpse into the future to let us know what is going to happen before it happens. As we move through the book of Revelation, it is truly a challenging book, but it's also a book that within that challenge contains great blessings for you and I. It's the one book that has a promise at the end of it, that those who read and understand these words will be blessed by the Lord. Today, as we grow ever so close to the return of Jesus Christ, and I believe that Christians should live under the obedience that the Christ is going to, could return at any moment, I believe that it allows us to live out our Christianity in the method it was meant to. I have discovered through church history when there was a lack of emphasis on the return of Jesus Christ, there were dynamics of the church that seemed to lag in their uh, expression. For example, one that we see um, that often was lacking within a church that didn't see the Lord's return as being intimate, uh, intimate, uh, immediate, they ceased to evangelize. And today, as prophecy becomes less and less discussed among churches in America, it is interesting that I believe we're seeing that lull again, where individuals aren't nearly as compelled as they once were to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others who do not know him. I believe believing that the Lord could return at any moment motivates us not only for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ but to live wholly for the Lord. And as we go through the book of Revelation together we are given a glimpse into the details of one of the most talked about periods in church history and that is the years just prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue reading, we discover that John is exiled on an island, the island of Patmos. There he is being given a vision. He is recording that vision for us. It is that vision recorded for us that gives us the content of the book of Revelation. He is looking deeply into the future from his position. He is seeing things unfold before him. And he has been recording those images, that vision for us, describing those visions with the vocabulary in which he which he has. And now we will see that he actually begins to participate within the vision. Where God will ask him to measure out the temple of God. Including the altar and the worshipers there. We are going to discover this evening that Next to this temple, in the same city of this temple, God has positioned two witnesses that seem to be proclaiming warning unto the world of what is about to happen and what they should do in the light of that. And we are going to watch those witnesses be boisterous for the Lord And we're going to see them persecuted for the Lord. We are going to see them martyred for the Lord. And three and a half days later they're going to rise again. Then we are going to move to the seventh trumpet. For we are currently between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And when the trumpet, the seventh trumpet begins, seven more plagues will unfold. They're known as the bowl judgments. Seven bold judgments that will uh, happen in a very quick concession, one right after another. And the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ will occur at the end. But as we move through this, notice this evening with me that we begin with a temple and we end with a temple. A temple that John is mar- measuring out and a temple that is in heaven. Where John sees in the last few verses of chapter 11, the temple in heaven, and that temple contains the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant promises that God has made to the people Israel. I believe that the book of Revelation is God dealing with the people of Israel. I believe that what we are going to see is the fulfillment of the prophecy and promise that was given in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 as it had been appointed for the people of God 77 year periods of time. Within the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 we discover that 69 of those 7 year periods have passed concluding with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I believe that the book of Revelation is the last seven year period of time that had been promised to the nation of Israel by God to wrap up and to fulfill all that he said was going to happen for that to happen and then moving in after his return into the millennial kingdom for 1,000 years. As we look at this We will begin to see the Jewish flavor of it as we see very strong parallels to the book of Zechariah and the book of Ezekiel in the same manner. For as you remember, Ezekiel prophesied that Israel would one day be gathered back into their nation in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And many prophecy scholars believe that from that point there's a concession of prophecies that will be fulfilled. As we get to Ezekiel 38, you have the Magog invasion, which is specifically outlined for us and articulated. And you have Israel defeating this invasion, an event that has never taken place in history, and most believe that it is still yet future. Some see it as part of the Battle of Armageddon, Others see it as a separate event altogether, but it is very, very well described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. In 1948, Israel regained their land as the Zionists moved back into the land of Palestine, once again calling it Israel, and it was a miracle like we've never seen before. In 1967, they regained Jerusalem, the second of miracles that people never would thought that they would see before. But what has always been missing from the Jewish identity that is current today is their temple. A place where they can once again continue their worship of God under the Mosaic system. It appears that the temple will be rebuilt again in this last seven year period of time. Many believe that the Antichrist will allow this temple to be built once again on the Temple Mound and allowing the Orthodox Jew to once again worship Jehovah through a sacrificial system. It appears to me that it is this temple that John is measuring out for us by its description. And as we read through it, we are going to be looking at it in that regard. Now I must also state openly that there are those who see that this does not have anything to do with a literal temple. It has nothing to do with the land of Israel. This is all symbolic and speaks of the church, including the two witnesses and so forth. I differ with them, but there are very godly people who hold to those positions and who see the church going through the tribulation period but being protected by God during that time. I think that the description here that we are given, if interpreted literally, we would look at it and say that most likely it is a literal temple. But there's also an event that needs to take place that has been hallmarked in the Old Testament and the New Testament and is still yet to be fulfilled. It's an event called the abomination of desolations that we read about in Daniel as we went through the book of Daniel. It is spoken about in uh, Matthew's gospel, and it is, I believe, fulfilled in Revelation chapter 13, where the Antichrist himself will set up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies and demand to be worshipped as God, inferring then that there has to be a temple if there is a Holy of Holies. And so as we work through this, we are going to be looking at it from that perspective in a more literal interpretation rather than symbolic, seeing a literal temple being fulfilled here. Now, Israel desires to build a temple once again. And depending on who is it, the prime minister and depending on the, um, the, the temperature of the nation at any given time, that desire for a temple increases and decreases, But as you have seen undoubtedly numerous pictures of Israel, you will see men lined up in front of a wall saying their prayers. One of the last walls of the temple that they have. There is a desire to rebuild the temple. But the the mount that which the temple must be built is currently occupied by a very sacred Muslim structure called the Dome of the Rock. And for years many believed that the Dome of the Rock was currently built on the exact same place that the Holy of Holies once existed. They have discovered now that in actuality the Holy of Holies is outside of the Dome of the Rock and could possibly allow for a temple to be built in an area that would not affect the Dome of the Rock. And very possible the Antichrist will allow that building to occur. Why do I say that? Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 states very clearly that the Antichrist is going to enter into a covenant agreement with the nation of Israel. Now for the nation of Israel to enter into that covenant agreement, the nation of Israel must have been once again gathered as the nation of Israel. And I believe that what is going to happen, that if the Magog invasion takes place before the battle of Armageddon, This will lead to the chaos that is necessary to allow the Antichrist to come in as a political and then as a religious figure, gaining the strength and the popularity that he will need to do what he is about to do. And as it unfolds, part of that agreement will possibly be the reconstruction of the temple there in Jerusalem. So as we look at Revelation chapter 11... Verse 1, we are introduced to a temple. And we find that John is given a measuring rod like a staff. Verse 1, And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two years. Months. Within chapter 11, we are now going to discover an actual period of time being laid out for us in the, uh, in the manners of months and days. These are consistent with Old Testament references found in the book of Daniel to plot us out to a seven-year period of time. The time frame that is calculated here in the book of Revelation was based on the Jewish calendar of 360 days. And as we look at these and take them in a literal fashion, we find that 1260 days would constitute a three and a half year period of time equal to a 42 month period of time based on a 360 day calendar. But John begins by being given a measuring rod, which was no more than a reed, that he would use then to measure the temple. This is not a first time occurrence. Ezekiel measured a temple in Ezekiel 40 and 41. Also in Zechariah 2 1 through 13, he measures a temple. And in both of those cases, it was an an actual temple in which they measured. And the measuring of the temple often indicated God's selection for either the purpose of preservation or for judgment. We have examples of both in the Old Testament, where God measured out some for preservation at one time, and when God measured out others for judgment. Here it appears that he is measuring out for preservation, and we'll look at that as we move through the text. The temple, however, though, as a, physical, as a physical structure itself, is described in a threefold manner. He says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, which most likely refers to the brazen altar that would have been outside the temple, uh, temple itself and those who worship there. So there's three that are there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months or three and a half years. Brian, if you would forward the slide, we have a picture of a temple that you can see for yourself and allows you to see the courts that they are describing. I believe that it is a physical temple in which he is, that he is measuring here and God is allowing him to see that. Now understand that when John wrote this letter, 25 years earlier the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And at that point he knew that the Jewish people then had been scattered as Christ said they would throughout the known world. And though we know that the church has began and the church was grafted into the vine and the church is now the continuation of of what God had started through the people of Israel, he has not abandoned his people. And there is still a plan and a purpose for them. And there are promises that have been made in the Old Testament that are still yet needing to be fulfilled if God is going to be true to his word. And part of that promise is not only the promises of the land itself, but the promise of the the judgment. His finished dealing with his people. And he measures things out. And he says specifically to John, section this off. Those who worship there. Now, is he speaking of believers there or is he speaking of Jewish people who have returned to their worship have gone through the Mosaic system? But the Gentiles, the nations from around Israel, are now trampling on the city and will do so uh, for a period of 42 months at this time. There's some explanation that's needed there, I believe, to understand fully what is taking place. In Luke's gospel, Jesus made a very interesting statement concerning a time, a period of time that would take place known as the time of the Gentiles. In Luke 21 20 through 24, Jesus said, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let those who are out in the country enter it, for these days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, women who are pregnant, and all those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And the Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does he mean by that? Short-term, long-term prophecy fulfillment in that. Obviously, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was just about to occur. But then he talks about this time of the Gentiles, which actually most believe started around 600 BC, beginning with the Babylonians and their intrusion upon Israel and then leading into the Roman oppression and and so forth, and Israel being subjugated to the Romans and so forth. And it doesn't appear that that time of the Gentiles will end until the return of Jesus Christ. It appears that this trampling, which means to be uh, subjugated, bringing under uh, domination or control, especially by conquest, the invaders have some soon subjugated most of the native population, Some synonyms for this word are conquer, vanquish, defeat, crush, and gash. So what's happening is that God is preserving a remnant of people. Around them it is chaotic. And this would be consistent with the mapping out of this seven year period of time. Many believe that the Antichrist will rise to power through political and peaceful means. But halfway into it, he will demonstrate his true nature, turning on the very people that he once promised to protect. And as we look at this, we find ourselves in chapter 11 in the midway point of this seven-year period of time, and things are changing. And God has set and measured out his people. Now, again, he points two prophets in front of this temple. I want to reiterate again that my belief is that this is a physical temple. Again, many see here it being the church. But let us remember what Jesus said very clearly about the abomination of desolation which must take place within a temple. He made it very clear. It started in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many, that is the Antichrist, for one week. And for half of those weeks, he shall put an end to sacrifices and offerings. Sacrifices and offerings can only take place within the temple itself. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree ends and is poured out on the desolator. Daniel further talks about this in Daniel 11.31 when he says, uh, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortresses and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, many scholars look at that Daniel prophecy and say that was fulfilled in the person and the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, 300-something B.C., maybe. And that's what Daniel was speaking of. That very well could be if it weren't for for Jesus himself. For Jesus coming 300 years later, In Matthew chapter 24, clearly says that the abomination of desolation still has to take part, has to take place. In Matthew 24, 15 through 16, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, so there's no ambiguity into what Jesus is referring to, he goes then on to add, standing in the holy place, which could only refer to the physical temple, Let then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Very similar to what he said in Luke, but Luke is the only one that contains that section. Uh, Matthew and Mark do not. And then Paul adds one more element to it. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And in Revelation 13, we actually see this occur. And in all of those verses, He is speaking about a physical temple being in Jerusalem at that time. And so as we continue on, we find now further. Now the two individuals are set before us in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are not pronouncing the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are warning the people of the coming judgment that is coming about. Prophets in the Old Testament were wearing sackcloth and ashes was a proclamation of judgment and of repentance and getting right with God. Two witnesses. They are not named, but descriptions are given of them to help us identify who they may be. But these two witnesses are set there at this place for 1,260 days and it appears that it is probably the first half of the tribulation period warning the people because at the rise of the Antichrist he will actually be allowed to slay these two, martyr these two and then something dynamic is about to happen. But just as Joshua and Zerubbabel in the book of Zechariah chapter four, facing the rebuilding of the temple. And we're not able to do it in and of their own strength and their own ability. God gives them that beautiful uh, manner of encouragement through the imagery of the uh, bowls and the olive trees and the oil. And he said, What does this mean, Zerubbabel? That it's not going to be by might, not by my power, uh, not by your power, uh, but by my, (laughs) excuse me, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how this temple is going to be rebuilt. And the power that these two stand in is that exact same power when the, te- when the task of the temple and the rebuilding of it seemed to be too monumental and the weight of it all was coming down upon them, then these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, which is a very uh, exact same wording that we find in Zechariah 4. And if anyone would harm them fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. Now, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, And they have the power to overcome the waters, to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And then we're going to find out what happens to their dead bodies in just a moment. These two individuals seem to possess the same abilities as Elijah and Moses. Some want to simply identify these two as Elijah and Moses. That's fine, but they're simply called two witnesses. But it's very descriptive in what they're able to do as they desire during the entire time that they are prophesying. And if they are confronted or if their foes come against them until the Lord has finished with them until the testimony that they have is completed until God is done with them they are able to resist any kind of antagonism that is forced upon them. And then when God is done with them he allows them to be martyred for his sake. And then something miraculous happens. Know this, that you're not going home until God is done with you. Please know that. Please know that as you walk with the Lord and you are His and He has given you the Holy Spirit as a seal of promise, promising to return for you once again, he is in control. He knows what is going on in your life. He has you set apart and only allows those things that he deems necessary. Sometimes in the manner of blessing, sometimes in the manner of trials and tribulations, but all for your good, for the purposes of conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. And you are not going home until the Lord is done with you. He's not going to take you home until he is ready to call you home, whenever that may be. Today it's amazing to me how many people are considering taking their own life. Suicide is running rampant in our nation. Young people today are turning to suicide as the ultimate way out, either as a manner of uh, looking for attention Are hoping to have that 15 minutes of fame or whatever it may be, or despair and depression has overwhelmed them to the point where they feel that the only way out is to end their life. They do this without any consideration that there may be something on the other side. They do this in anticipation of thinking that if I were to take my life, I'm going to alleviate any suffering that I may be experiencing, not thinking for a moment that ending their life may plunge them into suffering eternally. They don't consider that. I think about this as I notice these prophets warning the people, even at this late hour, telling them that judgment is coming, repentance is needed, covered in sackcloth and in ashes, saying, repent, get right with God. And how through the history of Israel, as you look through the Old Testament, prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet was sent to the people. And what did they do most of the time? They dismissed them. Some were even physically killed for being an annoyance to them. One right after another coming and speaking on behalf of God, warning them, turn from your ways, turn back to God, why must you die, choose life, etc. Then God sends Jesus and demonstrates His love through the cross and says anyone who will repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ shall have eternal life. You'll never be alone. That void will be filled. You will have hope beyond hope. You will have a peace that surpasses all understanding, not a peace that the world can offer because the world can't offer any kind of real lasting peace. And as the world pursues happiness in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can have joy, which is far superior to an emotional temporal state of happiness. And I feel that as the gospel is penetrating our culture today, it is falling on deaf ears. The world has become so loud in its antagonism against Christianity that people don't even want to listen to us anymore, even though we have the answer. And yet I know God in His infinite plan and purposes and sovereignty has, a, has everything in His control and is working out everything perfectly just as He would. I think about these two. We don't know who they are. They definitely have supernatural ability demonstrated in what they're capable of doing that has been given to them by God. But after seeing the leveling of seven sealed judgments and have seen the sounding of seven trumpets that have blown and the devastation that has come, they're still out there. And they are not able to be moved unless God allows them to be moved. What am I saying? We live in a very dark time. It is not the time to hide our light underneath a lampshade. It is time to set our light on top of a mountain, on the side of a mountain, in the midst of the city, that people may know that there is an answer for the darkness that is swallowing up and engulfing people in the manner in which it is. Even at this late hour, God's mercy is found. Repent, turn. Judgment is coming. Jonah, you know... He didn't want to do it. At least he was honest. I, I don't want them to repent, Lord. I don't want them to. And he went, actually went out and pouted. And, 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 and he was there that a tree uh, grew over him and covered him. And what did Nineveh do? They repented. Don't think anyone's too far gone. Don't think it's ever too late. Keep going until God takes you home. You know, it's the roughest life that you'll ever live, but the retirement plan is awesome. And these two are able to do extraordinary things as the prophet Elijah was able to do, as Moses was able to do as he was getting the attention of the Egyptians. But notice, as often as they desired, they were able to do these things. And in verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, when their job was done, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically... Now, interestingly, in the King James, new, old King James, new King James, spiritually is the word that is there for symbolically... Is called Sodom and and Egypt. What city are we talking about? I think John makes it clear with this next statement. Where their Lord was crucified. Jerusalem. Israel has to be a nation. Jerusalem has to be a city for the Jews for this to take place. That's what's happened. And as a result... Because of the wickedness of Jerusalem, as Sodom was wicked, and Egypt was arrogant, a worldliness and a pride and arrogance found in Jerusalem, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nation will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to, to let them be placed in a tomb. I thought of the psalmist when I read these words. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 79, 1-3, O oh God, the nations have come into Your inheritance. They have defiled Your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of Your servants to the birds of heaven for food the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. So they laid out three and a half days in the places where they were slain. And the world gazed upon them. And if this wasn't enough, the people refused to place them in any kind of tomb an ultimate sign of disgrace. They wanted to desecrate these two. Why? Verse 10. And those who, were, who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Talk about celebrating a person's death to that extent. Isn't it amazing we're trying to do away with Christmas and it looks like Dead Prophets Day is coming to a Hallmark store near you. People will celebrate exchanging gifts with one another because these two have been slain because they had tormented the people. They were a reminder to the people of their wickedness. It was very uncomfortable to listen to these two prophets day in and day out. They became like nails on a chalkboard to the ears of the people. Undoubtedly, as the people suppressed the knowledge of God in complete and utter unrighteousness. They didn't allow for the world to progress as the world wants to progress under the leadership of the Antichrist. They were a thorn in his side. They were a thorn in the people's side. And when they were finally gone, they thought, that's it. We are done with them. This is it. We can move forward. And we are Alleviated of this torment. And as they made merry and exchanged presents, because these two prophets had been tormented, torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The first woe was the fifth trumpet. The second woe is the sixth trumpet. And now we find that the seventh and the final trumpet is the last of the three woes that are are pronounced upon the world And as we've moved from the temple to the testimony of the two, we now move to the final phase of chapter 11, which contains the seventh trumpet. An incredible, incredible incident that took place there in Jerusalem. Verse 15 Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever and the 24 elders who we saw earlier in revelation representing those who are in christ old and new testament uh Saints alike, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces, worshiping God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the renewing, uh, rewarding, I'm sorry, of your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Contained within the seventh judgment, or the seventh trumpet, excuse me, we will discover in Revelation 16 are seven more judgments that will take place very quickly. But this is it. The end is almost near. And what Jesus started 2,000 years ago, That culminated in his death, burial, and resurrection, what he paid for at that moment, what he instituted or inaugurated at that moment in the declaration in which he made that the kingdom of God is now at hand will now literally begin here as we move on. We will see him deal with the false prophet, the Antichrist, and Satan himself in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, and then get to 16, and you're going to see the Final judgments upon the earth and then upon Babylon in 18 and then we get to chapter 19 where Christ physically returns to this earth. In this seventh trumpet, a declaration was made of a fulfillment of a prayer that was prayed earlier by Jesus himself. In fact it was as he instructed us to pray we find that this prayer is now answered here in our text. When Jesus taught us to pray our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is now at this time that the kingdom of God, the physical reign of Jesus Christ is almost about to take place and the transference and the judgment has now unfolded and now he can regain that which was lost completely at the fall of Adam. He then returns in Revelation 19, establishes a thousand year reign in chapter 20 and in verses uh, chapter 21 and 22. There's a new heaven and new earth created and all things are brought back to the way that they were meant to be as he's finalizing this period of judgment upon the world, he's finalizing the period of judgment upon the nation of Israel, he is bringing about his perfect plan in all concession. Throughout life, there are times in our lives that we feel that we are overwhelmed by the chaos of this world. Sometimes we feel like we're drowning and we feel overwhelmed And we just can't seem to get our head above water to be able to see what's ahead of us, to see if there's light at the end of the tunnel. I can only imagine that at this moment in time, that was their thinking. That was their feeling. That there is no hope. But yet God is in control of all things. God has told us beforehand what is going to happen. That way we know And those who are here will know. And therefore they can also see that it's all going to end with God's return to this earth and the establishment of all that he has promised from the very beginning. That's a great thing to remember. Because again, life can be extremely chaotic at times. Life can be extremely challenging at times, but it's at those moments that we must remember that our heavenly Father is in control of all things. In fact, this was a hope. The kingdom of God was a hope that Daniel even grappled with. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 to 45, when he writes, And in those days of those kings, speaking the kings of the ten toes, which we'll look at as we get a little bit later in the book of Revelation, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw the stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it was broken in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this the dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. That's where we're moving to. As we move through the book of Revelation, it is simply a portion of that journey. I don't know about you, but road trips are getting harder for me to do as I get older. I don't enjoy them anymore as I once used to. And there are just certain states that you wish you could just be at the other side of as you're driving through states that are just perfectly flat in every single direction in which you look. And don't ever tell me there's a shortage of corn. Please. It's not possible. But then you drive through those states, or as some call the Midwest, the flyover nations to simply get from the East Coast to the West Coast, the flyover states, I should say. The book of Revelation is a portion of that journey that is incredibly uh, difficult. But God is showing us every step of the way that the end is His bringing about all things back to the way He once desired them. And that we moved away from when we fell. In verse 19, we end again with a temple. Then God's temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumbling, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. John is then reminded that what is known in heaven, is now going to become played out on the earth. The hope that what God has in heaven is now going to be played out throughout all the earth. And that's the new heavens, the new earth, and all that he is going to create. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And there he sees the Ark of the Covenant, the promises to his people. 25 years earlier, a temple that he saw was the epicenter of the Jewish person's life. It's where they met God through the Mosaic system. Jesus told us very clearly that he was going to be that new place. But now, as Israel once again settles themselves in their land, institutes their acts of worship again, which is not what God would have. It is a rebellion against God. It is not a means to an end. And it is that stage that the Antichrist is going to capitalize upon and desire the whole world to worship Him. He started out in peace. He ends in war. And Christ will be the one that deals with him in a finality at His return. Very interesting chapter. Let me leave you two things to take away with you this evening. Two things that I think all of us need to know and we can learn from this particular chapter. First, I want you to all know that we have unlimited access to God by His grace through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. These talks about temples and the interaction between man and God through the necessity of a temple has been resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. For there is one mediator between man and God, he is the person of Jesus Christ. We have access. We can go boldly into the throne room of God at any time we desire as long as we are in Christ. We can go before him in prayer in his presence through the person of Jesus Christ. To appreciate that, to really appreciate that, remember all that was necessary for an individual to approach God in this earthly temple, in the tabernacle that preceded it. How the high priest could only go in at certain times at, uh, of the year and had to be cleansed in a certain way and there was no assurance that they were not going to be struck down for some type of defilement before God. God. All of that's been done away with in the person of Jesus Christ. Access is fully granted for us in Christ to God. When he died, the veil of the temple tore from top to bottom. Access is granted. No longer is a daily sacrifice needed, a weekly sacrifice, a monthly sacrifice that's all been finished in the person of Jesus Christ. secondly, the second powerful and reassuring truth that can be drawn from this passage is that our sovereign king will reign and reward those who follow him. It may feel a time that you are subjugated to this world, to the ruler of this world, but that's a falsehood. It's not true. As John measured out those, that remnant, those who worshiped there, the remnant of Israel, so God has mapped you out. And you are no longer under the authority of the God of this world, the ruler of this world. Your King and Lord is Jesus Christ. And you are no longer subjugated then to this world. You are free from it you are free from it. We must never forget that. No matter what circumstances we face, no matter how challenging, how difficult they become, how overwhelming the troubles are of our life, we must never forget that we always have access to God by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And number two, that He is in control and all things are coming about just as he would have them, and they are ultimately working out for your good, and that is the conformity of you into the image of Jesus Christ. So when I read a passage like that, and I'm overwhelmed by the circumstances, and undoubtedly we are in heavy Jewish territory here as God finishes his dealings with his people Israel. Understand. Understand that we have access to God through Christ and that he reigns over us and we are no longer subjected to the ruler of this world, the God of this world.